Let me just say good morning and welcome home. It is great to be with each and every one of you here this morning. And I get it right, during the weekends they can get busy, especially this time of year. And I just want to say we recognize that you could have done a lot of different things uh, this morning, but you chose to hang out with us, and we don't take that for granted, and we're very thankful and honored that you are here to worship and to grow in your journey with Christ with us at Northridge Church, so thanks for being here with us. And if you look at your calendar, you probably know this, but Easter is two weeks away. I don't know about you, I love Easter. Easter's awesome, and I want to invite you to a party, because on Easter Sunday, we're going to have a party. Because Jesus is not dead, he is alive. Amen? Amen. Amen. I mean, I, figure, I feel like if you come back to life, you should probably get a better clap than that. But, you know, we'll work on that for Easter Sunday. Okay, we'll get there, I promise. But let me just remind you, let me just challenge you as a church. Over the next two weeks, we have opportunities. We should be praying for opportunities to share our faith, to tell people about Jesus, to invite people to our Easter services. Because it's going to be fun. It's going to be engaging. It's going to be creative. And we want you to be testimonies in the, your workplace, to, to share the good news of Jesus. And so if you engage with us online every week, here's my challenge to you. On Easter Sunday, you make some good breakfast food, invite your neighbors, your friends, and watch, have a watch party on our online campus. If you go to one of our physical campuses, grab some invite cards as you leave, and as you go to work, as you go to your class, as you go to your dorm, or wherever God takes you, pray for opportunities, not only just talk about Jesus, share your faith, but invite somebody uh, to experience Easter with us at Northridge Church. I think the stat is 83% of people are open to a personal invite during the Easter holiday. So let's take advantage of that. Let's go for it. Let's be bold. So, you know, as we get this started this morning, let me just ask you a question. In your life, if you could have one debt paid off, what would it be? Now, think about that for a second, right? One debt. We probably all, probably all of us, maybe most of us have debt in our lives. Maybe it's student loans, maybe it's a mortgage, a car payment that we're consistently paying off. But if you're like me, debt has a way of kind of looming over the backdrop of my story, stressing me out. But if you could have one debt in your life paid off, what would it be? Maybe that mortgage, maybe that car payment, those student loans. And what's interesting about debt is when we think about debt, we automatically go to finances, right? Things that we are physically using our money to pay off, but I would suggest we have bigger debts than that. I mean, can you imagine a life where you could get back that one night where you betrayed your spouse? Could you imagine a life and how freeing it would be if you could get back those hateful words that you said to someone and it ruined the relationship that you cherished? Could you imagine a life where you could get back that one choice to end that pregnancy? Imagine a life without any debts, anything looming over your shoulders. What would that be like? What would that feel like? How much would it change your life? Well, if you got your Bibles, John chapter 19 is where we're going to be this morning. We're really just kind of picking up where we left off right at last week in John chapter 19. And I want to kind of catch everybody up to speed because maybe you're a guest checking us out or maybe you missed a couple weeks. But over the last five weeks, we've been kind of in this journey. 
This journey where we're zooming in at the cross, and I love this series building into Easter because we're getting a good in-depth look at the cross of Jesus Christ and what it means for our lives through his final words, the seven statements Jesus makes while hanging on a cross. And let's just kind of catch everybody up to speed. Let's review for a second. Let's look at the first five that we've looked at. The first one, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And I always find this amazing. The first statement Jesus makes from the cross is about others. He's suffering. He's going through a dramatic time. He's the victim. And all he can think about is my forgiveness and your forgiveness. And then the second statement, he has this conversation with two criminals and he says to the one who believes in him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And man, that gives us hope of the life that's waiting for us, that God, if we believe in him, he's our forgiver and our leader, will usher us into heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm excited and pumped for that. Three, this more practical Jesus on the cross where he says, behold your son and behold your mother, where Jesus takes care of his earthly mom as he's getting ready to die. He he transitions the care to a disciple. And then the fourth statement, maybe the most emotional statement where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment of the cross where it gets dark. The backdrop, the scene of the cross, all darkness covers the land because Jesus is wearing our darkness, our sin, and he's paying for it as God pours out his wrath on his son. And then week five, the seemingly out of place statement, I am thirsty. But yeah, behind those three words are a lot, right? Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, he's revealing who he is, and he's identifying with us as a human being. And here this morning, we're diving into the second to last statement on the cross of Jesus. It's in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so you see this progression, right? Last week, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And before he said, I was thirsty, he said, knowing in his mind, he said, knowing that it is finished, he comes, he gets the drink, they take the hyssop plant, they give him the drink because he says he's thirsty. And then after that, he declares this truth. He says, it's done. It's complete. It is finished. Now, if you study these words in the original language, the Greek, what's interesting about these words is their accounting terms. You see, in the ancient world that Jesus lived in, these were terms that were stamped. This was a a Greek word that was stamped on a receipt for your taxes. Because when somebody would pay their taxes, they would have a debt, and they would go to a tax collector in this day and age. Once they paid those taxes, these Greek words were stamped on that receipt to let everybody know, you paid in full. Because that's what these words mean. Jesus says, it is finished, it's paid in full. What's paid in full? Well, Jesus is paying for the sins of humanity, past, present, and future. He's paying off a debt that you and I could never handle, could never have enough to figure out how to overcome. And now, I get it, right? Many of us as Christians, we know this truth. We know the cross is the payment for our sins. But before we grow stale to that truth, let me just remind you of this truth. Process it with me. That Jesus on the cross is paying for the sins you have committed and the sins you don't even know you will commit. The sins tomorrow when you wake up and stub your toe and you say that word you ain't supposed to say. I've never done that, just so you know. (laughs) But those are already paid for. 
through the cross. Jesus says, it's complete, finished, paid in full. Now, we toss this word around in, in church pretty regularly. It's the word sin. But what is sin? Honestly, like we use it so much, we, I think sometimes we fail to define it. Sin is simply disobedience to God. It's rebellion against God. And the Bible makes it very clear that every single one of us has lived in disobedience to God. We're born in disobedience to God. Romans 3, 23, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. It's something that we all have in common, that we have all chosen to live in rebellion, in disobedience to God. And if you ever wondered, like, why is that? Why don't you have to train people to sin? Why is it so something that is built in, in us? Well, you have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. The book of Genesis is a book of origins. It's a book of beginnings. The very first words of the Bible are in the beginning, in the beginning origins, God created. He's establishing something. He creates the world as we know it, light and darkness. He creates land and sea and animals and, and hum, hum, humans. And Adam and Eve, the first humans, lived in this perfect world with God. There was no sin, it was flawless, and the great thing about this world was God and humanity dwelt in harmony. God gave them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And for a while, we don't know how long, Adam and Eve did exactly what God said. They lived in obedience to God, but at some point it all changed because Genesis 3, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so it's in this very moment that sin enters the picture for all of humanity. And from this moment on, you and I are built with a sinful nature. What that means is we are all prone to disobey God. It comes natural to us. It's our normal way of processing because of Adam and Eve's choice. And here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with Romans 3.23. We're all sinners. We're all living in disobedience to God. Sin comes with two things. Sin comes with a penalty and it comes with a price tag. Sin comes with a penalty and a payment. Let's talk about those two things. The first thing, the penalty for sin is separation. The worst thing about when you and I choose to live in disobedience to God is it creates a barrier between me and God. Adam and Eve, when they chose to disobey God, you see it from the very beginning. The moment they chose to eat that fruit, they realized they were naked, and what did they do? They went and they hid from God. Why? Because there was now separation. Because a perfect and a flawless God doesn't interact with sin. And so Adam and Eve, they hide, and they would feel in, 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 in a bigger way the separation from God. Look at Genesis 3. It says, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. And so Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden represented a perfect world. 
It represented a life where humanity and God dwelt in perfect harmony. But now there, because of sin, there is this separation between God and Adam and Eve that they're banished from the place they once knew and loved walking with God. But secondly, there's a payment for sin. Sin requires a payment, and that payment for sin is death. Because sin has entered into the world, death now exists. Romans 6, 23 says the wages or the payment for sin is death. So something would have to die now. You and I die now because we are living in disobedience to God. And here's what's crazy. From Genesis all the way to Jesus on the cross, guess what had to happen for the sins of humanity? Something had to die. You see it all throughout the Old Testament when God establishes the nation of Israel. Once a year, guess what they would do? They would all come together and they would come to the temple and the high priest, he would take bull after bull, lamb after lamb, goat after goat, and all of these animals would die because sin requires a payment and that payment was death. And that de- those animals' death was a reminder to all of humanity that they were sinful people. But the problem with the Old Testament system is it was just a temporary payment. You could kill animal after animal and it wouldn't take away the sins of humanity. It was just kind of an interest only payment. Right, Hebrews 10 says it like this, but those sacrifices, so the bulls dying, the goats dying, are just annual reminders of sins. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This system was just to remind people that a greater payment was coming. It was a temporary solution reminding people that they were sinners and they had a debt that they couldn't pay and they needed someone greater to make the payment. Let me put it to you like this, maybe an illustration that we can understand better. Let's just say for some reason, you know, we go home from church today, we get ready for Monday, we get in our car on Monday morning and we, 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 we get in the car and we drive to wherever we're going and all of a sudden our car starts to make some funny noises. Never want this to happen, but it's life and it happens and so we take it to the shop and the shop tells us, hey, this car's done, it's over, you need to get a new one. Never want to hear those words and so... You're frustrated, you go back to your house, you talk to someone, your family, whoever it is, you start to work a budget, you go to the car dealership and and you find the car that fits your needs, fits your budget and you pay for it but you don't have enough cash to pay for it so you take out some debt, you get a loan and over the course of five years you pay that loan down, you pay it every month, you pay those payments and the principal of that loan is, is shrinking and shrinking but after five years, something happens. Maybe you lose a job, maybe your finances change, and you can no longer afford that car. But you need that car. She's like, what am I gonna do? And so what you choose to do is make interest-only payments. And so what that means is you pay the interest, but the principal, the debt that you owe, never shrinks on that car. And you do that over year after year. And that was similar, that, that, that analogy, although it's flawed, is similar to the Old Testament sacrificial system. We had a debt, it was our sin, and the, 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 the death of blood and, and, and of bulls and goats wouldn't take away our debt, it didn't relieve our debt, but it was sufficient ultimately to when Jesus would come. And so when Jesus is on the cross and he says these words, it's 
finished. It's complete. It's paid in full. What he's declaring to you and I is that Jesus is the ultimate payment. That the debt that we owed that we couldn't pay, Jesus has paid it in full for us. In fact, Hebrews says it beautifully. Chapter 9, it says, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to do away with sin. How would he do that? By the sacrifice of himself, the cross. Just as a man is appointed to die once and after that face judgment, so also Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And he will appear a second time. We're getting ready to talk about that after this series. We're jumping into Revelation, the second coming of Jesus. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. You see, what happens on the cross and Jesus' statement, he says, hey, sin, that debt that lingers over your life doesn't have to anymore because it's taken care of. It's been paid for. It's finalized. The principle of that debt is gone. And when you, when you understand the gravity of those words, here's what you have to realize with your life moving forward. Guess what's good news? We don't all have to come together once a year and I don't have to bring goats and you don't have to bring goats and we don't have to kill them. Right? That would get really awkward really fast. And if we ever start doing that, I'd encourage you to check out a different church, okay? <laughs> it also means, you know, that separation between a sinful person and a perfect God has now been bridged. There's a gap there because of the blood of Jesus, the payment for our sins. We can now get back to God. We can go directly to God because of the blood of Jesus. That it's not dependent on us. You don't have to live your life at some good and worthy way to get back to God. Jesus is already taking care of it for you. He's created a way, and it's not dependent on what you do, how you act, how religious you are. It's solely dependent on the blood of Jesus Christ because he says, it is finished. The payment is complete. And that's amazing news for every single one of us. Let's go back to the beginning. Remember I asked you this question? If you had a debt in your life that you could pay off, what would it be? Would it be a loan for a car, mortgage? But let me ask you a different question. What if you had a debt you could never pay off? What if you had a debt that loomed over your shoulders for all of your life and you knew you would never be able to escape it? Can you imagine how trapping that would feel? Can you know how exhausting, how much energy you would waste thinking about that debt, trying to get around it, but never being able to? Guys, the reality is, is we had that. It was the debt of our sin. We lived in disobedience to God. We were guilty and we deserved to be punished. And here's what I know in our culture. Here's what we believe, what I believe and you believe. When someone is guilty, they should be punished, right? We believe this statement. You do the crime, you do the time. And we agree that for everybody except us, right? Think about some people in our society that are guilty that we want to see punished. People like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Epstein and Giselle Maxwell, rapists and murderers, right? Like we, we want those people who are found guilty, we want them to be punished because they're guilty. But here's the problem, guys. Every single one of us, before God's eyes, are guilty. And we deserve punishment. But as Jesus hung on the cross, he took our guilty verdict 
and he took our punishment. And after he paid the price, he says, you don't have to worry about that debt because it's paid in full. It's covered. And when you think about these words on the cross, when you understand the gravity of the gospel and what Jesus did through his cross and his resurrection, there's only two things that we can ultimately do. The first step is to realize that God has paid your debt and would you accept his payment? God has paid a debt that you couldn't pay. It was the debt of your sin and you have to choose to receive his payment for your life. Can I ask you a question? If if tomorrow someone was to walk up to you and hand you a check for your greatest debt, for your mortgage, for your student loans, for your car payment, they just handed you a check and it was the exact amount for that debt, what would you do with that check? I would hope you would take it to the bank and you would cash it in and you would would pay off that debt. But many people, what we do with the debt Jesus covered in our lives is we squander it away. Jesus has paid a debt for you and all you have to do is receive it. And the way we receive it is by just admitting that we are sinful people. We've lived in rebellion to God. And yet, Through Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, if we choose to believe in it and surrender to it, making Christ our forgiver and our leader, our Lord and our master, our debt is canceled. So today, what are you waiting for? Jesus has handed you that check. Would you cash it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it like this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's trespasses against them. So your debt has been paid. All you have to do is receive that payment through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus. But for many of us, we've done that. For many of us, we're here to worship the God who paid our debt. But what is our response? I would challenge all of us to live like you've been set free to live like you've been set free from the bondage of sin and the slavery of sin. It's almost like this, this analogy, someone is on death row. Someone who, who's guilty, found guilty, is on death row. And then you can, you can picture it, they have handcuffs on, one of those big old balls, and freedom is not even a thought in their mind. And yet what, that was all of us. And yet Jesus comes in and he takes the handcuffs off of us, the bondage that slavery put us in, and he says, go live free. And can you imagine if someone was on death row and was set free, how they would live? I'm free, baby, let's go. The things that they would enjoy and the celebration that they would have, and yet Jesus has set us free from the bondage of sin. And we're like, yeah, Jesus, he's kind of cool. It's like we've grown stale to what Jesus has done for us. Look what Corinthians says, it says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making his appeal through us. Can I ask you today, you are Christ's ambassadors and God is appealing through you as a Christ follower. What are people seeing in your appeal? Are they seeing a person who's been set free from from debt that they couldn't pay off, or are they seeing someone who's grown stale of the gospel of Jesus Christ? But you know, when we look at the words, it is finished, maybe there's something a little bit deeper there. 
Because I think as Jesus makes this statement, I I think he's declaring something over death. Because remember, the, the payment of sin is death. And I think with Jesus' words, it is finished. What he's declaring to you and I is that death has lost its sting. That yes, every one of us, because of sin, is going to die, but that's not really the end. It's just the beginning of the life that God wants to offer you. And so we don't have to fear death anymore because of what Jesus has done. And so let's look at these words one more time. John chapter 19, verse 30. It says this, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. I'm at a cemetery, a place that ultimately represents death a place that is hard for many people to come to. Because when you look around this cemetery, you see tombstone after tombstone after tombstone. And each one of those tombstones represents a life, a story, a person. Maybe a child, a mom or a dad, a man or a woman. And for many people, we don't like to come to a cemetery because it's scary, it's eerie, But more importantly, it's a reminder of maybe someone that you loved, that you lost. A friend, a family member, someone close to you. And it's hard to come to a place like this because it reminds us of death. And yet, we think about Jesus' words as he was near death. He says these words, it is finished. And I believe those words penetrate to a place just like this because ultimately what Jesus is saying is the end, death, no longer has its sting. And those words impact our lives today in two significant ways. And all you have to do is look at a tombstone because on each and every one of these tombstones is two significant things. The first thing that we see is something that we often overlook. It's the dash. You see, the dash of a tombstone is really the place you and I are living right now. It's our physical life. It's the in-between from the beginning to the end. And what Jesus' words say to us is that this dash, our lives, truly matters. How you invest your treasure, how you spend your time, how you use your talents, how you live your life today and tomorrow and until you meet that end significantly has value. You see, your life matters not just to you, but to the people you have influence over. And so this dash has significance, but more importantly, as you look at a tombstone, Jesus' words, it is finished, hold true and fast to that end date. The date on every tombstone of the person's end. And when Jesus says these words, it is finished. He's declaring that our deaths and everybody else's deaths is actually not the end, but just the beginning. Because let's face it, each and every one of us is going to die. And the Bible makes that very clear, right? Romans 3.23 says we are all sinners. And then 
Romans 6 says the wages, the penalty of that sin is death. So we all know this. We all know at one point in our life, we are going to end up right here. A tombstone with our name and our end date. And for many of us, that terrifies us. For many of us, we're afraid of death. But if we cling true to Jesus's words, it is finished, we don't have to anymore. Because death has lost its sting. That the end of our lives is really not the end but it's the beginning of the life that Jesus has in store for us. So can I ask you an honest question? Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid of that moment where your life will end? Can I tell you because of Jesus and his cross and his resurrection and through his words, it is finished, you don't have to be afraid because he's made a way for you at the end of your life to experience just the beginning of what he has in store for you.